Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We're now in our fifth season, and we remain just as excited as ever to continue to help you explore and understand that unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. Here we look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung, heart issues, and more. So listen in today as we interview experts for today's show on our continuing theme this month of extreme weather events. And today we're going to be focusing in on fires and winds and coping with the dual threat of wildfires. Now, according to the National Weather Service, although wildfires are not actually or technically weather phenomena, they are related intricately to weather, with most wildfires being caused by lightning, and then they can even cause their own weather, which is intriguing to me, and we're going to really try to unpack that later on in the show. Wildfires in the form of bushfires, vegetation fires, forest fires, and grass fires are prevalent throughout the world. Recent high-profile events in Chile, Australia, California, and Canada have reminded the global community of the devastating effects uncontrolled fire can cause. Widespread wildfires in the summertime, and now even springtime, are rapidly becoming, quote, our new normal in the American West. And along with the destruction and the loss of forests caused by blazes, there are immediate as well as long-term environmental impacts that dramatically affect our vital resources. The number of large wildfires in the United States has increased significantly since the 1980s, and annual acres burned are projected to continue increasing. Now, some western ecoregions now have almost year-round fire seasons. In recent years, wildfires have made headlines as they blazed across the west, across Alaska, and, of course, this summer across Canada, burning more than approximately 9.8 million acres just last year, according to the National Interagency Fire Center. But wildfire is also a part of nature. It can play and does play a key role in shaping ecosystems by serving as an agent of renewal and change. But fire can be deadly, destroying homes, destroying wildlife habitat and timber, and polluting the air with emissions that are significantly harmful to human health. Fire also releases carbon dioxide, which is a key greenhouse gas, and it releases that into our atmosphere. And, of course, greenhouse gases are gases in Earth's atmosphere that trap the heat down here with us. They let the sunlight pass through the atmosphere like a greenhouse does, but they prevent the heat from that sunlight from leaving the atmosphere, again, like a greenhouse does. But they prevent that heat, as we say it, from leaving the atmosphere, and that causes global warming and climate change. Fire effects are influenced by forest conditions before the fire 
and management action taken or not taken after the fire. And they may be positive or negative, really, depending on the perspective and the values of the observer. Now, one of the most dangerous aspects of wildfires is the wind. Wind can fan the flames, spread the fire, and create fire whirls and firestorms. Fire whirls are spinning columns of rising hot air and gases that carry flames and smokes. And they can range in size from less than one foot to more than 500 feet in diameter and can have wind speeds of more than 100 miles per hour. So that's like a hurricane. So firestorms are large-scale events that produce strong winds and fire-induced thunderstorms. They can even create their own weather systems. And again, we'll dig into that a lot more in our conversation. Wind can also affect the behavior and the direction of wildfires. Wind direction determines where the fire will spread, while wind speed determines how fast the fire will spread. Wind can also influence the shape and the intensity of the fire. For example, a head fire, it's an interesting term, (laughs) is a fire that burns with the wind, creating a fast-moving wall of flames. And then you have fires that burn perpendicular to the wind and those that burn against the wind, with each of those creating its own type of wildfire event. Now, wind also carries embers and firebrands, which are burning pieces of vegetation or other materials that are burning over long, long distances. And these can ignite new fires wherever they might land, called spot fires. And this is ahead of the main fire event. Spot fires can create challenges for firefighters as they can increase the size and the complexity of the fire and make it just much, much harder to contain. So the dual threat a fire and wind poses serious risks to human lives, to property, and to ecosystems. Therefore, it's very important that we are aware of the potential hazards and that we take precautions to prevent and to prepare for wildfires. Now, some steps that can be taken include creating a defensible space around your home by clearing away flammable materials such as dry leaves, branches, and debris as well as installing fire-resistant roofing and siding and windows and and using non-combustible materials for your fences and decks and patios. And also it's important to follow the local fire restrictions and regulations and avoid activities that can spark a fire, such as burning trash and using fireworks or even parking on dry grass. And then, of course, ultimately staying informed of the current fire and weather conditions in your area and following instructions. So wildfires, again, are a natural and inevitable part of the environment, but they can also be exacerbated by our own human activities and climate change. And so by understanding the role of fire and wind in wildfire behavior, and by taking some preventive and preparedness measures, we can hopefully help reduce the negative impacts of wildfires and protect ourselves, our communities, and our environment. Now, this is a lot, but here today to help us unpack and understand this some more are two experts who are gonna make us smarter. Today we have with us Deepti Singh, Deepti is an assistant professor, and she leads the Climate Extremes Lab in the School of Environment at Washington State University, Vancouver. And her research studies how natural climate variability and human-caused climate change affects extreme weather events like heat waves, drought, and intensive rain events, and how these changing climate conditions affect our health and the resources that we rely on. 
DT is also an author of the fifth U.S. National Climate Assessment, scheduled to be released any day now. Actually, it may even be today. She'll let us know. <laughs> Welcome, Deep D. Thank you so much for changing your schedule to be with us, and we really uh, appreciate you being with us. And did I get all of that right? Yes, that was perfect. Thank you. And actually, the release, the report was released this morning <laughs> at 5 a.m. Eastern time. So okay, <laughs> very good. And we'll talk about that a lot more during our discussion. Thank you for being with us. And our other guest is Jennifer Marlin. Jennifer is a senior research scientist and lecturer in the School of Environment and the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. And she has a secondary appointment as lecturer in their Department of Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology there at Yale. Jennifer studies climate change, extreme weather, particularly wildfires, and she also is over the Yale Climate Opinion Map, which is, is very interesting, and we'll get to talk about that a lot more, too, during the show. Welcome, Jennifer, and did I get all of that right? Yes, thanks for having me. Great to be here. And thank you all for being with us. We just have a few minutes to go before we have to go to break, but I do want to start out with you, Deepti. Could you please kind of provide our listeners with a brief overview of your expertise in client science and how you came about authoring, being one of the authors of this year's fifth National Climate Assessment, and then tell us what it is? Sure. Yeah, I'll try to be brief. Um, so I've been studying climate change since 2010. Um, I started my PhD uh, working on extreme weather events, and in particular, the science of attributing extreme events to human activities. Um, and then since then, I've started. I've been working on different types of extreme uh, events um, that have occurred in the past, understanding trends in extreme events as well as how we can potentially predict them. What are the sources of predictability um, in different uh, extreme events? And uh, recently have started studying wildfires. In particular, you mentioned lightning as being one of the drivers of uh, wildfires. And one of my students has really helped push me to learn more about those. So that's a brief introduction of what I'm doing. And regarding the National Climate Assessment, well, it's an assessment of climate change um, and climate impacts, as well as climate solutions that close to 400 authors across the U.S. have put together. And actually, the, the science of climate change is a much smaller part of the report. It's really, in their, their chapters on energy, food, water, pretty much anything you care about and how those uh, sectors are being impacted by climate change. Um, and also, what are communities doing? What are some actions we can all take to um, minimize impacts on these and, and also to adapt to the changing climate? So there are, you know, there is evidence that uh, that communities are adapting and sectors are adapting, but we also discuss what we need to do to reduce uh, future warming and the things that we already have in our toolbox right now to do that. So it's a really comprehensive report. Um, it, it covers every sector. It covers every region in the U.S., including U.S. territories uh, that are extremely vulnerable to climate impacts. And it has a really handy atlas that anyone can go and check out and explore how their region is being affected by climate change. And is that done, and we do have to go to break, is that done every year or how often is it done? It's at least every four years. Okay, because we covered it before and talked about it a number of times on our show. We're going to go to break. We'll be right back on the other side with Dr. Deepti Singh 
with Washington State University, Vancouver, and with Dr. Jennifer Marlin uh, with the Yale Climate Change Program. And they have started making me smarter already. Uh, We'll be right back. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, the Green Healthy and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all HEB stores, natural grocers, all central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more, and we are told with the best Christmas trees in Texas. Check them out at NHG.com. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care. Practicing dentistry for over 40 years with a holistic approach, non-mercury, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lynndentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. To today's show on extreme weather events, focusing in on fire and winds and coping with the dual threat of wildfires. And we are back with Dr. Deepti Singh at Washington State University, Vancouver, and Dr. Jennifer Marlin with the Yale Climate Change Program. Now, right before the break, Deepti, you were telling us uh, about the... um, U.S. National Climate Change uh, Report and the fact that it's done like every four years or so. And it seems like it's basically to kind of update us on climate change and the things that it's, it's, it's causing. I imagine, too, that it probably serves to kind of document <laughs> that climate change is happening and maybe the rate or something of that nature. So the assessment report assesses like literature that's already been published, um, particularly since like focusing on the uh, papers that have been published since the last report, which was published in 2017 and 2018. But it, it, it is a way of like evaluating all the literature that's out there and making that tangible for decision makers, for public, for educators, for you know whoever is interested in in learning more about it as well as in doing something about it. Um, and so it's really translation of this large body of science and in this case, they've, they're not just scientists, they're also um, a lot of social scientists that were involved in the development of the report, as well as some community members that were involved in the development of the report. So, um, and, and agencies and federal agencies that were part of the report. So just uh, it's like a collective effort evaluating where we're at, what we can do, what are things that are already happening across the country. Yeah, trying to bring everything together, which I think is important, because one of the reasons we started this show was seeing all the really good, important information that's out there about the various environmental issues and climate change and trying to get it to the ordinary people in their everyday lives who must understand it and who must uh, realize and internalize 
uh, where we are with climate change as we get to where we need to be with mitigation and, and, and adaptation. So there's a lot of important information out there. And again, our goal is to kind of bring it in a way that's digestible to others. Now, what has amazed me about you two ladies and today's show is just like you talked about the uh, U.S. National Climate Assessment Report, and it's bringing together this important information about what's happening. Uh, I want to now move to Jennifer because she has this thing that has just totally amazed me as well. And they seem to almost like fit together. And that's her climate, it was climate communications map. And uh, one of the things I think I got from your your map, it may have been a different report, but I thought it was your map because there was so much good information and so many layers of it, was some statistic. It was very much towards the end. And it had to do with how much information is getting out there and how people are consuming that information. It was way low compared to many other aspects. So, Jennifer, I want to move to you, though, and have you tell us really briefly uh, about your climate communications map. Yeah, right. Well, that statistic you're probably thinking of is, I think it's about 35% of the public um, talk about climate change with their family or friends or neighbors or peers um, at least once a month, I believe it is, or no, maybe that one is at least a couple of weeks. But nonetheless, it's incredibly low. People are really not talking about this issue. And it's about the same number when you ask how often do you hear about climate change um, in the media, you know, in the news that you're getting. It's, it's about a third of people say I hear about it, you know, at least every couple of weeks. So people just are not consuming information about this. They're not hearing about it. It's not on their radar for most of us. Indeed. Um, and that's why that statistic actually, it, it concerned me, but it also gave me some validation. <laughs> because as I've talked about some right, other folks right. who do so, similar stuff, we all ask ourselves, how do you know if you're making a difference? What are your metrics? And we kind of don't have any. <laughs> we all determine that by way of the fact of doing it. It's making a difference. But again, when I saw that, because your other numbers were really good in terms of people who believed in climate change, things like that. But when I that just really disturbed me about the communications part of it. Yeah, it's true. And so but you're right. So when we say, do you think um, climate change is happening about 70% of Americans will agree. And if you say, do you think it will harm people, you know, future generations, most people agree on that. They think about this as a change that's going to happen in the future. Um, They don't quite always realize it's happening right now. Um, But then when you say, do you think it's going to affect people in the United States? It's only, um, you know, maybe 60%. And then we ask again, do you think it's going to affect you personally? And less than half say yes. I think it's only about 47% think that they're personally being harmed when the truth is that all of us are actually being harmed, um, if not directly physically through fires or fire smoke or something like that, then economically, um, because even if fires happen far away um, or extreme weather happens far away, it does have cascading impacts on supply chains and the availability of food. And um, so there is there's kind of a disconnect because it seems like such a, an abstract, far away problem that's going to affect people in the future, people in the Arctic or, you know, people on islands. Um, but but the reality is it's it's coming much closer to home through these extreme weather events primarily. 
Indeed, indeed. And again, that it, it kind of validated us in terms of what we're doing. With, but we kind of knew that, but it, it, it even more. But at the same time, it was kind of disturbing. But anyway, Jennifer, I want to ask you, though, too, uh, what do you see as the most common causes, though, of, of wildfires? Yeah, sure. So in the fire community, people talk about the fire triangle. Um, and so it's a good way to realize that you need three things to have a fire. You need fuel, something to burn, right? And that could be trees or plants, but it can also be homes. The actual homes, not even just log cabins, but actual structures of homes and buildings can be the fuel for a fire. Um, and then you need heat, like some kind of ignition source, and sometimes it's a lightning strike, but more often in most places and at most times, it's actually people starting it, um, either intentionally or accidentally. Um, so you need fuel, you need heat, and then you need oxygen. You need wind or you know oxygen coming in to, to fan the flames and, and to get that fire burning. And so... When those three things come together, you get a fire, and the more fuel you have, the bigger and more severe the fire, and the more heat and the more wind, and so on. They kind of feed off each other. Um, and so then when you think about how do you prevent it, well, you prevent fires by taking away one of those three elements. It's, you know, you could take away the oxygen. It's why we all learn as kids, stop, drop, and roll. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if you get caught on fire yourself, stop, drop, and roll to put the fire out because you're basically depriving the fire of oxygen. You're smothering the fire. So you're taking away one leg of that stool. Um, or you could take away the fuel. There's no more fuel. The fire would go out. Or you take away the heat by dumping rain or snow on it or, you know, um, otherwise cooling it down. How do we predict wildfires and how has that changed? Because I remember the first season we did the show, which I believe we started October 2019, and probably maybe October, November, December of that year, we talked to a number of folks in Australia, had a couple of people from the University of Queensland, and that's when they were having their fire issues. I didn't fully understand it, the impact at that time, and I said, yeah, yeah, right, but they told me the fires were going to be coming this way, and I did not understand how they could. So talk to me a little bit about how we predict fires or, or predictability and what those trends might have been. Yeah, well, DT might be able to speak to this better, mm -hmm. but um, my sense is that, um, and what I hear, you know, our tools are constantly improving. Our technology, our methods for predicting fire, we have better better weather forecasts, so we know when it's going to be hot or dry or windy, and we have, you know, new sources of data from satellites, and we know sort of how the landscape varies because if you're in a mountainous place or in a flatland, fires behave very differently depending on topography and weather. So our tools for sort of predicting fire from that aspect are improving. But at the same time, um, we are underestimating how quickly our climate is changing. And that's taking everybody by surprise. It's taking the fire managers by surprise, the firefighters by surprise. It's also taking the people who deal with flooding and hurricane by surprise because the very nature of these events 
are just behaving a little bit differently and often in worse ways. And we're not, we're not prepared. We're not nearly as prepared as we need to be because the whole system is sort of changing in ways that we have never experienced before. Seems like we need to add a, a fourth leg to that stool, and that's climate change. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Deepti, let's get you to weigh in and let's just start, though. We just have about a minute to go, so I'm going to have to break in and go to break. But let's go ahead and get started in, in terms of uh, weighing in on predictability. Yeah, so I think when, we, when we're talking about predictability, what you're thinking about is um, can we predict these fires in the next few weeks or in the next like months? And, and so for that, what we need is to understand the state of the vegetation. Um, and that means monitoring drought and monitoring dryness as the fuels. And we have satellites, as Jennifer was mentioning, we have satellites to do that. And also then we have weather forecasts that give us fire weather information, which is the combination of, fire, of meteorological conditions that, can, that are conducive to fires burning and spreading. And so the weather forecasts, the, the short-term weather forecasts that we get from weekly to 10-day timescales can help inform that. In addition to that, we also need to potentially to know where might lightning occur, because lightning is one of the um, driver, the, the sources of ignition for fires. And again, that's something that, that forecasters can, can get at through looking at the meteorological conditions uh, from the, the forecast. And so they can um, use kind of using the fire, the, the ignition probability, the weather forecast and the state of the, the vegetation can help us predict fires, at least in the short term. Indeed. We're going to go to break now. We'll be right back on the other side to continue that conversation with you, Deep Deep. Thank you all. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. On our series this month on extreme weather events, as today we focus in on fire and winds and coping with the dual threat of wildfire. And we have two experts who indeed are making us smarter. We have with us Dr. Deepti Singh, uh, who is with Washington State University in Vancouver. And we have Dr. Jennifer Marlin at the Yale Program on Climate Change. And again, thank you all for being with us. We really appreciate it. Now, before the break, Deepti, you were talking to us about predictability. And, and, and what I really stuck with me is that you have models, and I, I'm presuming models are always being worked on and, and getting better. And you were talking about some of the conditions that were, I guess, filtered into or put into that model to predict. But what about long-term or longer-term predictability? For example, summertime is apparently kind of fire season, probably because of the heat, one of those legs. So do we know, are we able to predict maybe what area or region will be hit with wildfires uh, next summer? Oh, that is the uh, trickiest question (laughs) because (laughs) we can predict them uh, next season or in the next few weeks where they might occur, and we can make projections for the long term, but predicting them a year from now is challenging because the um, there's a lot of year-to-year fluctuation in weather conditions uh, that's driven by natural climate oscillations in the climate system and the earth system. Those are really hard to predict on such short time scales. So we can make predictions on short time scales, and we can make projections on long time scales. 
Um, and to make long-term projections, what we need to know, what are the emissions going to be in the future? What's our trajectory of emissions going to be? Which will dictate how warm it is and how precipitation patterns might change. And so once we understand when we when we can use these these climate model projections, the input to those models is is simply the amount of emissions and other factors like natural factors as well as human sources of emissions that are input to those models that basically determine what the climate system would look like. And so once we have these climate projections, we can look at areas that are going to be hot, have hot and dry conditions in the summer. Um, and if there is vegetation in those regions, that's likely to be a hot spot for wildfires. Now, you said we, uh, and it makes sense that we have better predictability in the short term. So do we know of any hot spots or potential fire uh, projections for any region of our country in the in the short term coming up here? I was just going to chime in and say we can probably at least say there will be more fire in the West, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> in the long term, yes, we know that the Western U.S. Is, is, is projected to dry up and it is warming up. It's warming up faster than the Eastern U.S. So that is in the long term, it is already a hotspot and is likely to continue to be a hotspot. So wildfire activities in the West are, are likely to become more severe and more challenging. So, but the other question that I that that I am uh, moved to ask then are we anticipating some more Canadian fires? Because even though the fire wasn't there, the Canadian fire affected the Northeast almost like it was there. So, any predictions or things that we know already about that area? So we're getting into the cool season. We're getting into also the wet season in, in some of these areas that are at risk of wildfires. And so there's the, the risk of wildfires is reducing at the moment for the next few months. Uh, but if drought and heat in the West, as well as in um, Canada, continues, then that is those areas are they, they could still in, uh, experience um, an active wildfire season next year, depending on how this year plays out. We have a record, potentially a record-breaking El Nino event um, that could lead to dry conditions in certain parts of the world, uh, including in the Pacific Northwest, um, and that could set up conditions for a, an active fire season next year. Indeed. And we saw this past year much, many more fires here in, in Texas than we had in the past. In fact, here in North Texas, we had a number of fires that were even in grassy medians along the highway. So it's it, it, it looks like to some degree that just about every area is susceptible if uh, those legs that Jennifer talked about are in place. For sure. Yeah, and y'all were coming out of a really um, hot season, right? You've had heat waves that were persistent, that were severe, um, and, and that dries up vegetation. Indeed. I want to go back to Jennifer here for a moment now. Jennifer, how do extreme weather events such as hurricanes and tornadoes, though, affect wildfires, the incidents or the spread of them? Because, you know, they're like opposite ends, but I, I am told there could still be some effects out there. Yeah, they can be um, sort of complementary in a bad way, um, because uh, when a hurricane comes through or a tornado, often you do have some rain, but then those storms, um, well, they're bringing a lot of wind with them, and so they're knocking down trees and destroying buildings, and that's scattering fuel, essentially, all across the landscape. And now you've got all these uprooted and dead trees and branches so 
you know, once those trees are on the ground, they're not drawing moisture up from the earth anymore. And so now they're going to dry out really quickly. So once the rain is gone, now you've got, you know, maybe wind and some heat, and now you've got all this dry, dead fuel on the ground, and you can get real big fires coming through shortly after a hurricane. And we've seen that happen historically, um, even in New England. And some of these these hurricanes in particular can take out massive, massive amounts of forests um, and we would call it wind throw and then create all this dead dry fuel. But as you were talking about earlier, also, um, it's increasingly common that we're seeing really severe fires in grasslands and shrublands. And so, I mean, I think about the fires in Lahaina and Maui, you know, those were really in grasslands. And even in Colorado and Boulder, that urban um, or semi-urban corridor there, that those were grass fires and they took out hundreds of homes. And so we're, I feel like, and now you're talking about Texas and Oklahoma, you know, they get really big grass fires there. So it, it's not necessary. This is what I mean by our changing climate. It's really changing the way these fires and storms behave by themselves and also how they interact with other um, events. Because also because now the fire season is getting much longer, we kind of have fire season all year round. Now you can intersect fires with hurricanes and fire with Santa Ana winds or, you know, when used to be that there was separation between the fire season and the windy season. But now they're intersecting. Why is that? Well, that's because of climate change. Okay. Yeah, the, I, the seasons are shifting. The spring is hotter. It comes mm-hmm. earlier. The fall is staying warm longer, and it's getting windier. I mean, really many, many different elements. It's not just temperature. It's not just global warming. It's, you know, global weirding, as some <laughs> people say. Yeah, my granddaughter used to call it global warning. <laughs> she was global trying to say warning. she was trying to say warming, <laughs> but she said warning, and we said you are more right than you know, even though you mispronounced that. Uh, I want to go now to uh, back to Deepti though, and 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 I know we covered this somewhat, but I just want to finish it up because then I want to move on to some of the other impacts, and that is key factors contributing to the increase in extreme weather events, all of them. Uh, particularly fires and high winds, which Jennifer just talked about. But how are these factors that are contributing to extreme weather events, uh, how are they kind of impacting our environment otherwise in our daily lives? Because we're seeing, even though we're focusing today on fires and winds and wildfires, we are seeing increases in all of the weather events. They're getting more and more extreme and more and more frequent. So I can, I can try to take a stab at that. Yeah. So uh, one of the main ways we're experiencing the most, the clearest signals of global warming is an increase in extreme heat. Um, and this is happening pretty much across the world. Um, it's happening uh, since you're in Texas, uh, you're familiar with that. Texas has had some uh, severe uh, long lasting heat wave this season. And in the past decade across the West, we're seeing larger longer lasting and more severe um, heat waves. So that's one factor that's that's changing. Um, We're also seeing changes in uh, precipitation patterns. We're seeing changes in the amount of rainfall that falls during the the winter season. Uh, We're also seeing, as Jennifer was mentioning, longer dry seasons. 
And if you have hot and dry conditions, that tends to create conditions for drought. So we're seeing longer and more severe drought in many regions, particularly in the Southwest. We're in a state where uh, this is the most severe drought in at least the last 1,200 years, if not longer. Um, so we are, this is a combination of temperature, warming temperatures, heat waves, and change in precipitation patterns, as well as the the form in which precipitation is falling, not just um, you know the amount of precipitation, but whether it's falling as snow versus ice. And um, because we're having earlier snow melt um, and less snow, that also makes the dry seasons in the West, and that which is a tip, the summer season, making it makes them drier. Okay, we're gonna go to break now, Jennifer, and then I know you want to weigh in, and then we'll get back right back with you after the break. And then this last segment, we really want to key in on the health impacts, impacts on daily life, and why people have to care. We'll be right back on the other side. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all HEB stores, natural grocers, all central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. And I am told with the best Christmas trees in Texas. Check them out at nhg.com. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 40 years, with a holistic approach, none mercury looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. To today's show and our series on extreme weather events as we focus in on fire and winds and coping with the dual threat of wildfires. And we are back with Deepti Singh with the Washington State University in Vancouver and with Jennifer Marlin with the Yale Climate Change Communication Program. And they are making us smarter. And again, thank you, ladies, for for helping us out with this. I want to go back to Jennifer. You wanted to weigh in on what we were talking about. And I also want you to weigh in on one last thing before we go. We really want to get into the health impacts. But as you weigh in on that, I also want you to weigh in on we talked about, I think I mentioned in the uh, intro, that wildfire creates its own weather issues or own weather patterns. So talk to us. Yeah, so I I just wanted to um, weigh in on the question of how extreme events are affecting us in our daily lives. And I just actually returned from a week-long conference in Santa Fe, New Mexico, that was the Sixth National Cohesive Wildland Fire Management Strategy Workshop, a big mouthful. But basically, there were lots of fire managers and um, fire departments and representatives from government agencies like the Forest Service and others And what they were talking about was how it used to be that we would think about these folks as protecting communities. Um, And they do still protect communities, um, especially from fire, but 
really is we're rethinking in the context of our changing climate now, they're now focusing on preparing communities to receive fire. And I feel like you could say this about flooding and extreme heat and these other hazards as well. We need to kind of rethink how we deal with these things. And it's not that we can protect ourselves completely um, because these events are going to happen and they're going to keep happening more and more and they're going to be worse than they were in the past. So that's the bad news. The good news is people are really starting to understand that we can do something about this we can prepare for them and we have to prepare not just our homes by having you know water and copies of our documents and our pet food and medicine and things like that but we have to prepare our entire communities to receive these floods and these fires and these heat waves and we do a lot of folks in our communities know what to do we need to find those folks and ask them yeah and there needs to be a um, lot of learning from uh, the communities yeah. out west who've endured a lot of this. And, and I'm, I'm sure you guys talked about this at your conference, too. But one of the things that ordinary people in their everyday lives can do is to try to fireproof their homes. But a lot of that also, I think, goes to uh, local code enforcement and things like that by them requiring that roof material is is fireproof and things like that. And I really would like to see these communities that really have been devastated, th- that more of that information is pushed out, perhaps more immediately while it's on people's minds. So that's a big deal, too. Thank you all for that. I want to go now to uh, Deep D, and then I'll come back to Jennifer. But I want to talk about the health impacts. What are the health impacts of wildfires? So most directly, we um, when, when fires burn, there's um, smoke, which contains particulate matter, and it contains a number of other pollutants that are extremely harmful to human bodies and also to, to ecosystems and, and, and natural species as well. Uh, for, for humans, particulate matter, which is smaller than 2.5 micrometers, so human hair is about 30 to 60 micrometer, I think, so very fine particulate matter, smaller than uh, our hair, um, can be ingested into our bodies, into our lungs, and uh, sometimes even into the into our bloodstreams. And that can impact our cardiovascular health. It can increase the risk of asthma, especially if you already have some of these chronic conditions. It can uh, worsen them. Um, and particulate matter can also uh, result in premature mortality. And so it can have things from so it can have small effects from like headaches and dizziness, which I can attest to from uh, experiencing the wildfires here in 2020 to you know earlier deaths. Um, so those are some of the health impacts from the smoke. Um, and then directly, people that people whose lives whose homes have been burned by these fires are displaced, um, and and they have lost you know everything that belongs to them. And so there are uh, mental health consequences. Um, Some of the people that have been displaced because of fires also experience PTSD. And so there are numerous health impacts. Some of of them are direct and some of them are more indirect. Um, and, And also some of the pollutants from fires that end up in our water bodies and it affects the quality of our water. Um, and sometimes can cause reservoirs to be closed because they're contaminated with with uh, wildfires. And and I think one thing we were talking about earlier is that it's not just trees that are burning now or vegetation that's burning now. It's also homes and infrastructure that's burning. And so now we we don't even know fully what the composition of that smoke is. 
and we don't fully understand the health impacts. I just mentioned one pollutant that we sort of understand well because we've been studying it because it's part of other pollution that we experience. Uh, but wildfire smoke, there are campaigns to try to better understand what's in wildfire smoke and um, a lot of work that's being done right now to understand the health impacts of it. And we're really underestimating that. Yeah, but we do know that whatever is being burned is in that smoke that we're inhaling. Now, with the Maui, I know that they're still kind of processing what happened in Maui, but that seems to me to, to be maybe a good Petri dish or a good place that maybe give us some good statistics and good information about wildfires and things like that, as well as health impacts. But I, I really am trying to get at, are there any statistics from Maui yet and or perhaps from the Canadian fires? Any statistics yet on health impacts and cost uh, of those health impacts? I think the health impacts are still being studied, but there are estimates of the damages associated with wildfires. And so for the Maui fires, the economic damages associated with them, which does not include those health costs, is about $5.5 billion. Um, It is one of this year's billion-dollar weather disasters. It's not a statistic I like to learn about, but it is something that, you know, just this year we've already had more billion-dollar weather disasters than we've had in the past 40 years. Um, And fires since 2017, 2017, 2018, 2020, all these three seasons had um, economic damages exceeding $10 Uh, Jennifer, you want to weigh in on that? Um, I I think the Canadian fires are also likely to be another billion. So, yeah, no, the economic costs are, you know, above and and beyond what they've been historically in recent decades. And, And we see, you know, ripple effects throughout the economy now because it's affecting insurance is one of the big sectors now where people are really feeling their insurance rates skyrocket. I don't know what the details are on Fire. I know there are there was um, a, a lot of debate around new fire maps in Oregon um, that DC could probably talk about. But I know also for flooding in Florida, for example, I know the average cost of home insurance in Florida is like six thousand compared to the national average of like seventeen hundred for the U.S. as a whole. That's because Florida property is more expensive, but part of it is also because of the extra flooding is now being factored in there. Um, So, yeah, economic costs in multiple ways from these events. Any sense of, I guess, health care costs, too, especially with the Canadian fires, because that affected the northeast United States all the way down to really going into the south. Effects were felt as far as Atlanta. Yeah, I did hear, you know, New York City was the most polluted city in the world after, you know, for a couple of days during those fires, which I think is probably a new record. Um, and I haven't heard exactly about the cost, the financial cost, but I know the human toll, um, you know, it, it, emergency room visits are being quantified and they do go up during these um, really bad smoke days. And I know I, re- I read the um, risk of a fatal heart attack doubles when you have heat and smoke combined, because when you're already in an urban area, especially, and then you add a hot, sunny day, that heat is basically cooking this the pollution in that city and turning it into more smog. And so anybody with any respiratory issue is going to be feeling worse 
worst impacts there. But luckily, there are, you know, we could, it's now very easy to get indoor um, air cleaners and to, you know, that can filter the air. And so if you are aware of this, you can go to um, airnow.gov and check your air quality index and reduce your activity outdoors. You can stay inside for the few days because part of the challenge with fire is that we also need to get more fire on the landscape, in fact, in a more controlled way so that we can reduce those fuels. So we need to tolerate a little bit of smoke to avoid the really big, horrible smoke days and the smoke that has, you know, buildings um, on fire. So it seems like they need to be doing some of these control burns about now. So that, right. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that exactly. when the yeah when the summer gets here, it, it, it it'll be better under control. Thank you for that. We just have a few minutes to go, and I want to pose this to both of y'all. And that is what, and I'll start with you, Deep D. What can ordinary people do in their everyday lives to help drive solutions to this? We've we've talked about a, a, a lot of it, but what other things, perhaps, again, that just every it's in everybody's control. In in the West, we we um, there's a lot of discussion about indigenous fire management and fire practice practices and cultural burning um, and really prescribed burning um, is, is really important for us to do. As Jennifer was mentioning, we need to manage our landscapes better. We need to uh, reduce the number of human ignitions because human ignitions are a dominant cause of, of wildfire ignitions. And we also, I think primarily, fires are not going away anytime soon. So what we need to do in the meantime is to adapt to this changing fire landscape, which also means protecting the most vulnerable people in our communities, which often tend to be outdoor workers, um, which also are, include indigenous peoples that um, are, are experiencing challenges from increasing wildfire risks. And also think about where we are building and growing because uh, some of these fires are now happening in what we call the wildland urban interface. So if we if we continue to build into those regions, that is likely to increase the risk of fires. Thank you so much. Jennifer, last word. I would say just talk about it, have conversations, ask questions, and look up your local fire department website. They have tons of resources. Go seek out a firefighter and have a conversation with them and talk to your school, your church, your local community. Start asking questions. Indeed. Thank you. Good advice. And thank you all both for being with us. You really have made us smarter. We have been with Dr. Depti Singh from Washington State University in Vancouver and Dr. Jennifer Marlin with the Yale Climate Change Program. Thank you all. And thank you, listeners, for listening in today to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and even in the grocery checkout line, so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is a result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day like yourselves. And each of those tiny acts can seem insignificant, but all of them add up one way or the other to the change that we each live through. This is your host, Bernice Butler. Thank you for listening today and listen to our past shows on podcasts wherever you get yours. Thank you.